Hear the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 5, 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain. For he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart, and the shackles he broke into pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs, and on the mountains he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adore you by God. Do not torment me. For Jesus said to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. He begged Jesus earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now there on the hillside, a great herd of pigs was feeding. And the unclean spirits begged Jesus, send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The swineherds ran off and told it in the city and in the country. The people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demoniac sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had been the legion, and they were afraid. Those who had seen what had happened to the demoniac and to the pigs reported it. Then they began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by the demons begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus refused and said to him, go home to your friends and to tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. And the man went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. The word of the Lord, please be seated. This is one of my favorite stories in Mark. But to really understand what's happening here, we have to understand what happened last week. If you remember last week in the sermon, we talked about Jesus had calmed the storm. And Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat. And a storm came up. And even the fishermen that had spent their whole lives on boats were afraid. And Jesus stands in that moment and says... Peace, be still. Why don't you understand who I am? And the disciples ask the same question that they've been asking this entire book. Who is this guy? And you have to imagine in that moment as they, they pull up on shore, the sun is rising. And they're asking themselves that question. Who is this guy? Except for Matthew. He's still throwing up over on the sideline. Nathaniel's over there swearing that he's never getting into a boat again. He's going to walk around the Sea of Galilee. He doesn't care. There's something about the peace and the calm that happens after weary nights, isn't there? 
It's the night you've been up all night with the baby and you finally get some rest. It's the night where the storm has kept you awake all night, but you're finally able to get some sleep and it's, the sun is up, it's time for peace. When out of the graveyard comes this crazed man charging at them, here comes the boogeyman. You know that in the region of the garrison, this is the story that parents use to keep their kids in line. You better eat those vegetables or Legion's going to come get you. If you don't go to sleep tonight, I don't care. You don't get one more glass of water. If you're not asleep, I'm going to feed you to the Legion, the boogeyman. When I was a kid, my... My dad was a teacher. He taught science, geology, and biology at a high school, but really in his heart, he was a painter. And he did uh, a lot of kind of Bob Ross, happy trees, and mountains. But there was this one time where he was looking through a National Geographic, and he came across this picture of a silverback gorilla who was doing his threat response. He was standing up, puffing out his chest, and baring his teeth. And the image was so captivating for my dad, he tore it out of the National Geographic and he decided, I'm going to paint this gorilla. And so over the course of a few months, uh, he begins to paint this on his, his easel on a canvas. And my family were in a tight space. There were a lot of us. And so his, his studio kind of doubled as like the playroom. That picture of that gorilla terrified me. Every time I saw that picture, I would cry. And I got to the point where I wouldn't even go down into the basement in the playroom because I knew that picture would be there. And there were moments I remember where I fooled myself. I was in the playroom. I played. I was messing around. And I look up and I see that picture. The only option is to run. Now, as a four or five-year-old, I didn't know the name of what it was. It's actually called gravity. But as you're running up the stairs, you kind of feel like it felt like something was pulling me back downstairs. I was terrified that that gorilla was going to get me. Well, my two older sisters found out about this fear. <laughs> and that gorilla showed up in the most terrible of places. It frightened me. And it wasn't but like a few years ago, we were at my mom's house. We were cleaning up, just sorting through some things. And we ran across that half-finished picture of the gorilla. My dad, he couldn't finish it because it was just too terrifying for me. He just put it away somewhere. And I look at it now as an adult, and I just don't see why it was so scary. This is a story about a boogeyman. We had a boogeyman in my neighborhood when I was growing up. Uh, it, was, uh, it was this house that was about four, four uh, houses down from mine. And uh, it had old trees with broken branches that were in the lawn. And the lawn was always overgrown. There were always leaves there. And it was one year when uh, I was doing one of those uh, fundraisers for my school. And my mom said to me, like, look, we're not buying $50 worth of chocolate bars again. You're going to get out there and you're going to sell these things. I want you to go to every house on our block and try to sell these chocolate bars. Every house on the block, including the boogeyman's house. And so I went around and I did all of the houses except for that last one. And I came back and I'm going to try to be obedient. And so I go up there and I, I ring the doorbell. 
and opens the door of this old man. And he says, what? And I just turned and ran. That was it. I tried. And like a, a Stephen King novel where children have to face their demons and then have to return uh, 27 years later to, to fight them again, it was interesting as I was thinking about this story that the name of that man was Mr. Fowler. And sure enough, when I get this job here at Highland Church of Christ, I encounter another Mr. Fowler. <laughs> who, by the way, is so cheery, kind, and optimistic about everything. <laughs> it was about seven years later where my mom says, Mr. Fowler called, I need you to go over there and help him. He needs some help with things. To the boogeyman's house? Just go over there. And I ring the doorbell. Mr. Fowler's not quite as big and intimidating as I remember him. In fact, he's this little old man. Then I go inside and I find out his story. He had been single almost his entire life. He had married when he was very young, um, and they, his wife had died about two years into their marriage, and he never remarried. He lived by himself. And he had, instead of raising a family, he had traveled. And all around his house were these little frames of the places that he had gone. He'd gone to dozens of countries. And they'd have a postcard and a picture. And then some of the money, some of the currency from that place. And we went around his house and he just kind of told me the stories of the places that, that he had gone. And then I, I helped him move some boxes. The boogeyman is the story you tell your children to make them behave. And here comes this story of a man that is hounded by demons. He is unclean. And he, he lives in a, in a region that's Gentile. They raise pigs there. He, and he lives in an unclean place. And not only does he live in an unclean neighborhood, he has chosen to live in the cemetery in an unclean place, in an unclean neighborhood, as an unclean person. And all he can do at night is howl and hurt himself. And it's just as Jesus gets off the boat, just as he has survived the storm, that he enters into this spiritual battle. And you think about the great battles that you have seen. It's like Lord of the Rings with Tolkien. And he's, he's talking about the siege of Homburg where Aragon and his trusty crew have to hold on against the horde of orcs that are coming against them. They have to hold on until first light because Gandalf is coming over the hill and at first dawn they will be saved. Or it's the story of Rocky or any other sports movie because they're all basically the same where the protagonist has to hold on and he's getting pummeled and beaten time and time again. He's getting beaten by his foe and the only thing that's keeping him up is the strength of his will. But in that last moment, through his spirit, he rallies the effort to uppercut his enemy and he there stands victorious. That is exactly not the way that spiritual battles go in the story of the Gospels. This is God. God who created the beach under their feet and the heavens above their head. This is God coming to the battle. And when God shows up, all that is left is the negotiation of surrender. And this poor man, 
He doesn't know his own name, and he has way more than just one problem. The demons know who Jesus is, and Jesus demands to know the demon's name. And in, the, in antiquity, in the first century in the ancient Near East, names have power, especially names of God. It's kind of like the story of Rumpelstiltskin. You might remember that story. Rumpelstiltskin is this kind of uh, elf evil creature that does a favor for this woman. He spends straw into gold, and she becomes successful because of that. And uh, she bargains her firstborn son to Rumpelstiltskin, and it looks like he's going to take her child away when all of a sudden she learns his name and he loses all of his power. The demons know who Jesus is. He is the son of the Most High God. But there's this other little story lurking just below the narrative if you notice the details. The context is the region of the Gerasim. And, and Josephus, who is a historian who wrote about the same time of Jesus, notes that the Roman general, who would later become Emperor Vespasian, sent troops to Gerasa and killed a thousand men and captured women and children as slaves. And if that happened in your lifetime, that's not an event that you're likely to forget. Jesus encounters this possessed man in the graveyard. Who do you think are buried in those graves? And so on the one hand, from a Jewish perspective, you have this man in an unclean place, in an unclean place, tormented by unclean spirits. It's a, the context is Chernobyl. It's the place where even the ground is tainted. On the other hand, you have this story of a massive defeat of an overwhelming powerful force coming in to kill everyone else, and you stand in the cemetery there. It might be Gettysburg. And so maybe, just maybe, Jesus is talking more about demons, and maybe, just maybe, this man stands for more than just an exorcism. There are all these military illusions that Jesus makes that are easy to miss. Some of them are very clear. Like, for instance, the demons name themselves Legion, which is uh, a number, uh, uh, it's a military force. It's like 6,000 men. It's a military unit. But then there's also this reference to herd of pigs. And you know, like you call it a, a murder of crows or a pod of whales, but this is a little bit funny because it doesn't quite fit. It's like if you called it a gaggle of pigs. A herd, that word there is a, it's also used as a, a gathering term for a bunch of recently conscripted, or conscripted soldiers. It's kind of like a platoon. Then Jesus gave them permission. He dismisses them. This word shows up again at the end of Mark when Jesus is dismissed to the cross. And then last is they rushed down the steep bank. That's the same thing as a Calvary, Calv, Calv, forget it. It's a horse charge. There's all of these military illusions that, that, that Mark keeps referencing, and it, it brings to mind this, of course, they're drowned in the sea. It brings to mind this another military force that was drowned in the sea while pursuing God's people. Mark is referencing the crossing of the Reed Sea when God delivers his people from the hostile oppressor of Egypt. And so maybe, just maybe, Mark is talking about something more than just pigs. 
Maybe he's saying, I have control over the Roman power as well. In Mark 12, 43, uh, Matthew, Matthew 12, 43, he tells us that demons prefer dry places. And there's a tradition that contains the bit about demons are killed by water. And so in Mark chapter 1, Jesus is healing in the context of a worship center and forgiving sins. But in the context of the Gentile oppressing power, he is setting the captive free. And Mark, from the beginning of this gospel, is concerned about power. So why is there another exorcism story? Mark has already proven that Jesus has power over demons. Matthew even combines these stories, but Mark keeps them separate. And maybe this hidden language to talk about secular power and the power of armies and swords, that this too will not stop the gospel. And maybe our context doesn't need to hear this. But imagine a house church huddled together as Roman soldiers march outside. Maybe it matters to the, the hidden silent church in China or our Syrian brothers and sisters right now that Jesus is sovereign over those situations too. And by the way, his answer to secular power is never violence, ever. Jesus restores this man to go home to be a witness where he lives. But we have to ask the question, why the pigs? Now, to you, this must seem like a tragic loss of bacon, but, but to a Jewish crowd, this is no big deal. In fact, why does Jesus even negotiate at all? The demons don't want to go into the abyss one scholar notes that the presence of the demon's mind and the pigs may have just drove the pigs mad and they end up in the water. Is it any surprise that baptism involves an immersion in water where our sins are wiped away as we participate in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus? That when we meet Christ in the water, what dies there is not just our sins, but the demons that haunt us. The other piece of the story is about those pigs. The kingdom has an economic effect. And people who benefit from those systems are going to resist the change of the oncoming kingdom. If the kingdom brings light, then those that profit from the darkness are going to try to stop it. This is true in Jesus' time and it's true today. Our church partners with uh, missionaries and, and, and workers in Thailand who are trying to take boys out of sex trafficked environments, trying to take them out of prostitution rings. And as they do their work of bringing light and love to those boys, there are people who will resist it because they benefit from that sin. And so don't be surprised if people ask the messengers, the people that serve as the hands and feet of Jesus, or even Jesus himself, to leave. Because the community resists the disruption of the status quo. And they are more comfortable with a known evil than an unknown change. And I wonder how true that is in our own lives as well. How often are we more comfortable tolerating the sin in our lives than doing something to change it? How resistant we are then when that change actually comes. 
It's kind of like the squeaky fridge door in my parents' house. I grew up, and we had the same fridge my, almost my entire life, from as near as I can remember. The fridge lasted forever. It was an amazing uh, piece of engineering, except for the fridge door. It had this terrible squeak. You would open that door, squeak! Time to close it, squeak! It was terrible. The worst part about it was that my parents' room, room was right next to our kitchen, so every time you opened the door, they could hear it. No midnight snack, squeak! Shut that door. Squeak. <laughs> and so it was, it was a moment when I was, I was almost ready to go to college when uh, the man that would become my future brother-in-law, one of my sister's boyfriends, comes and visits for a while. He opens the door. Squeak. Looks at the door. Closes it. Squeak. And then just disappears for like 15 minutes. And he comes back with a can of WD-40 in his hand. Squeak. My brother and I stand there, mouths agape in wonder at what has befallen our eyes. I immediately go to the door, pull it open, pull it closed, pull it open, pull it closed. My entire life, that door has squeaked, pull it open, pull it closed. My brother, brother grabs the WD-40 and immediately finds anything else that squeaks in the entire house because we have found the magical elixir, this can of life. As soon as someone shows us a better way, we do it. We don't want to stay the same. I don't want to live in negative habits and in negative ways. I don't want to live in a negative cycle of, of a bad interactions with my spouse. I just don't know any better. I can't help it. My wife and I, we have a script that it's the way we get into every single argument. I say this, she says that. I say this, she says that. And by the end, we're in a fight. And I know where the script is going when I started. I know that there's going to be apologies and there's going to be anger and there's going to be frustration and there's going to be hurt. I just can't help it. I don't know another way to go until someone showed me a better way. We don't know what to do until someone shows us how to live better. You don't want to live in that kind of frustration cycle with your kids, struggling over will or struggling over control. You just don't know a, a better way to do it. You don't want to live that way with your relationships as you're dating or whatever. I want to tell you the truth here, and this might hurt, but it's something I've learned. If you have found you're repeating the same mistakes in the last five or six of all your relationships and they end after six or seven dates, the problem is not the people you're dating. The problem is you. And we don't want to live that way. We want to have healthy, happy, productive lives. We just don't know how to get there. Sometimes we don't even know the problems we have until we try to fix them. It's the story of my friend Jesse. I was I working in Arkansas as a campus minister, and, and Jesse was hired as, as a, a guy that just kind of did stuff around the building. His story was fascinating. He had lived as an alcoholic and a, a drug user for a very, very long time, but he had recently become sober, and the church hired him to do uh, just anything he could, anything he wanted to uh, around the building. And Jesse worked harder than anyone I've ever known. The man was incredibly strong. He could pick up full file cabinets and just move them. 
And one of my favorite things to do in the week was to go and find Jesse and just talk to him for a little while because he would reflect on life in a way that I'd never even thought of before. And at first I tried to like help him do the chores, the tasks that he was doing, but I realized very quickly I was just getting in the way. It was easier just to sit there and listen. And so one day we're working, uh, well, I'm watching and he's working, I'm listening. And he, and he stops and he says, Shane, I want to tell you something. And so I look him in the eye and he says, I never knew how many problems I had until I stopped drinking. Jesse at that point had been sober for about six, seven months. And he was trying to reconcile the relationships in his life. He was trying to fix the relationship with his ex-wife. He was trying to reach out and, 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 and talk to his kids. He was trying to fix kind of the, behind him because of his substance abuse, there was this huge wake of disaster and broken relationships. And he was trying to get it fixed. He never knew how many problems he had until he'd stopped drinking. It was about eight months later that I spoke at Jesse's funeral. And I wish I could tell you in those eight months he had found reconciliation with all of the people in his life that he had hurt. I can't tell you that. But what I can say is that he had began the work. And I know, I can testify that the Spirit was healing and changing him. And if this story tells us anything, it tells us that the power of Jesus is enough to mend the damage of our lives, to heal the broken relationships. It may not be easy and it may not be a quick, but Jesus has the power to orient our lives toward God and that's enough. And it may be that you are living in a place that you don't wanna be and you're not really sure how you got there and you're not really sure how to get out and most of it's due to bad luck or ignorance than your own kind of ill will intention, but Jesus wants to show you a better way. And it may be that you've been tolerating demons and they have led you to an unclean place and it is filthy. It is, and the graveyard of your broken relationships are your only company. And Jesus is calling you out of that place. He wants you to be new. He wants you to be clean. And you find him in the waters. When we put on Christ and when we meet Christ in the waters of baptism, it doesn't mean that everything's going to be magically fixed. Anyone that has walked with God for any amount of time knows that this is more of a process of picking up old habits and putting them down over and over and over until you just kind of leave them behind for good. That being a good disciple may mean just having the patience to demonstrate you really have changed to the people that you have hurt. I know this is true in a lot of lives. This is true in my life right now. My wife and I have returned back to a city that I was in a very important developmental part of my life when I was here. And I, I have learned to put some of those bad habits and bad choices away, but now I'm back in this context and I'm struggling with them. Do you know in the last 15 years since I've been gone, not one donut shop in Abilene has gone bankrupt? Like two-thirds of the restaurants are gone. Every donut shop is still here. <laughs> and I'm figuring out what does it mean to be a healthy adult in a city where there is donuts everywhere? <laughs> and I tell you that one because it's funny. 
The other challenges are a lot more serious for me. But what I do know is that when we find ourselves in the waters of baptism and we have the patience for the spirit to do its work, we can be changed. Jesus calls us to know his name, the son of the most high God. And he knows your name. And your name is not your problems. And your name is not your sin. Your name is God's daughter. Your name is God's son. We are God's children. And he has set us free. We are no longer slaves to sin. But we are servants to the most high God. If you have your bulletin, I want to point you to uh, the spiritual disciplines that we're going to engage in this week. And this week, I really want to encourage you to do all three. They're kind of tied together in a way that uh, is designed to do something uh, for you. It puts you in a posture where God can speak. So I really want to ask you to engage in all three this week and see what happens when you open yourself up to the Spirit of God. You put your name uh, and your email address on it, tear it off and put it in the uh, boxes as you leave today, and we'll follow up with you with an email uh, that'll remind you how to engage in these disciplines. Will you please stand for our benediction? The God who knows your name is the God who is going to be with you this week. The God who sent his son to teach us how to live, to unravel the bad habits and to lead us into good places is empowered by the spirit that breathes in you. So this week, may you see Jesus. May you be empowered by his spirit and may God give you peace. Go with him.